And so the presence of God is what marks a people that are holy and that we want to be holy to God and honorable to God. You know, holiness is a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes in his kingdom, there's a highway of holiness and it's filled with joy. People are not walking down that highway just grudgingly, you know, so sad. We don't get to have any fun. The happiest people in the world are in heaven or in heaven. Not They're not in the world. They're in heaven. The happiest people ever are in heaven and, and they're holy. You know, things we think we need to have to be happy and holy is just a lie of the devil. We need Jesus. We need to be with God. He created us for him. Isn't that beautiful that he did? He created us for him. You know, and I just thank the Lord. Um, I just want to tell you one thing before I turn this over to our pastor. I just wanted to remind you and ask you to please come back tonight for our prayer meeting at 6 o'clock. Thank you. Amen. Um, here at our church, we love our prayer meeting. We love, we love God and we love to pray and we love to come around Him in prayer. And I, I believe we have a beautiful prayer meeting. Uh, with people hungry and seeking the Lord and just so many things that God brings us in his presence to do. And this is something we do every Sunday night. And we take communion and we pray for the sick and we minister to one another. And so if you don't have an evening service where you go to and you'd like to be in a prayer meeting, please come join us and pray with us. The doors are open for the body of Christ and believers to gather together for prayer. But tonight, please make it a point to be here for our prayer meeting at 6 o'clock. And this is what we have been actually, you know, just looking forward to. The prayer meeting is not our goal. The presence of God is. The power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we have been excited to get to this tonight, to be able to pray together and just be able to seek the Lord together. It's not that we haven't prayed today already, even. We pray without ceasing, right? So please come back and join us, and I thank you so much for doing that. And one that we love so much, and we have been blessed by so much, please welcome Pastor Alec Rollins. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for the privilege uh, you've given me of sharing uh, in the conference yesterday and here today. It's just an honor to be with you. Um, I, I'm never unaware of the fact that, that words, especially moved upon by the Holy Spirit, make a difference. Uh, there's a brother, I don't know if he's in this service, he was in the conference yesterday, who is from South Africa and close to my age, maybe, maybe a little bit younger, and he mentioned that we both know an evangelist that came to my dad's church when I was probably 14, 15 years old in the middle of, our church was in the middle of revival. And uh, this Afrikaans evangelist preached. And, and I was 13 years old and I will never forget these words. He preached from Second Kings the life of Elisha and uh, the prophets from the school of prophets in Jericho had run out of room. They were growing and they were having to make space. And he preached in this line. It's funny, 13 years old. I'm 73 years old. And I'll never forget this line. It won't make any sense to you, but I'll translate it for you. I'm not going to speak in tongues, right? So 
uns mit Balka Kopf in Rentemark. South Africa, the Afrikaans language is a wonderful language to preach in because there's a lot of spit and a lot of <laughs> going on. Uns mit Balka Kopf in Rentemark which translated means we must cut down some trees and make room for the move of God. And I was 13 years old, and I'll never forget that. And as I sat there a moment ago getting ready to come up here, I realized that none of us know whether we'll have tomorrow. And I don't know if this will be the last opportunity I'll have to preach the Word of God or preach it here, because we just don't know. And we're living in days that are being shaken like no other days I've ever lived through. I realize there are a lot of believers, there were a lot of believers during World War II that, that wondered if this was the beginning of the end. And men like Norman Grubb, whose lives you've read on prayer, built prayer meetings all through the United Kingdom to intercede for the Allied forces during that, that horrific war. And, and I believe the world learned a lesson then that it needs to learn again. And that is eventually, while tyranny may look like it's winning for a season, God has the last word. He always has the last word. And so I'm, I get up here very mindful of the fact that I must, I must give you words of life. I, I woke up in the middle of the night and jotted some notes down different than what I had planned to preach on, but I wanted to talk for a few moments since we're living in a season where everything can be shaken and is being shaken, including the church of Jesus. I read for the pastors yesterday uh, a prophecy that was given over me in 2016 by an Ethiopian pastor from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who came out to the Northwest not knowing me at all and spoke some incredible words over me and in the process said that this nation is heading for trouble and at a speed no one would have imagined, 2016. And he said there's going to be such tremendous shaking that false ministers and false ministries will not survive. And I feel like what pastor's task is right now is to bore down to the foundations once again and get the people of God off of anything that could be construed as frivolous and insignificant. And by God's grace, get folks back where if the day should come, and we've just lived through some days we never thought would happen, where the church is forbidden to meet. And instead of us getting to gather together in a service like this with incredible worship and the sense of God's presence, we're, we're just on our own with our families or our spouses. And what we've got to have is that foundation that is unshakable. And I thought in the middle of the night when I woke up about the numbers of churches that are established and built around different focal points. They have a different focus. 
And I, some of these may have been in the past, but some of them even recently. And I'm not speaking negatively of them at all because they're good things. But there are some churches that are built and focused around evangelism. And everything you read and everything you hear from the pulpit and when you're in the service, everything is geared to evangelism, which is a, a wonderful thing. And the whole church seems to eat, sleep, and breathe evangelism. And everybody in the area that loves evangelism flocks to that church uh, because that, that's part of the focus of their hearts. And please hear me, that's a good thing. Other churches in the past built around teaching ministry and the pastor. A lot of it has to do with the pastor's heart and focus, but the pastor may be a very gifted teacher and expounds on the word of God. And wow, do we need that today. But the whole church and ministry gets kind of focused around teaching and teaching ministry. And again, I'm not making light of it in the pastor's books and the pastor's blogs and the pastor's whatever on social media blow up because he's a he's an incredible teacher and i'm again i'm not denigrating that other churches remember back in the 80s and 90s and and that they there was such an emphasis on worship other churches were known as just worshiping in fact a lot of a lot of churches changed their names to such and such worship center Right? There might have been even, may still is, a Baton Rouge Worship Center. Everything was centered around worship. They did worship conferences. And, and of course, we know worship's an incredible thing. But the focus is all around worship. And then about around 2000, a whole movement emerged in this nation, literally called the, the emerging, emerging church or emergent movement. And it was all built around innovation. Uh, I mentioned yesterday uh, in the pastor's conference, there was a church in the Seattle area that started out and immediately went to about 11, 13,000 people. Everything was innovative. Everything was built around innovation. In fact, when you got their, their mailer, their mass mailer that started out the church, which at least for me spelled trouble from the beginning, but I didn't want to say anything, wouldn't have been my place. But the, the postcard, I wish I'd kept it. It was actually unbelievable. It said, give us 35 minutes, we'll give you God. Now, there's nothing wrong with 35 minutes. I mean, I've been in services, you probably have too, that have gone for three hours and God wasn't anywhere around. So it's not like long, right? It's not like long is the secret. Um, but the notion, the subtext, the, 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 the small print underneath, give us 35 minutes, we'll give you God. One of the things was, this is not your grandfather's church. And I know it's probably because I'm 73, but that ticks me off. Because <laughs> I was in my grandfather's church. And when my grandfather prophesied on occasions, it was like you were standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And it might not have been a very big church, but the presence and power of God transformed lives. So I'll take my grandfather's church. But then the other byline on this postcard was even more damning, I thought. It said, for busy people with important things to do on the weekend. And I thought to myself, 
you stand at the base of the cross. And look up in the eyes of the one who, who said it is finished. And tell them you're a, you're a busy person with important things to do on the weekend. But wow, they jumped to 11,000. One thing about being in the church for a long time, your pastor has too. You see all kinds of things come and go in your city. They're, they actually sang no sacred songs in the service. They were proud of the fact that they, were, they sang secular songs. It was kind of like a Jay Leno show. Uh, thank you, Aaron. And this was kind of cool, I thought. When you dropped your kids off, there was a chute. And you dropped them off in a chute. And it shot them down to the, to the kids' ministry. <laughs> I thought, I'd like to go in that chute. I'm not that old. But you know, it wasn't very long before the focus of innovative methodology became innovative theology. And it was only three or four years ago that they, in fact, we heard from a colleague, one of our associate pastors, who had a friend on that pastoral staff that said that when, when marijuana was legalized in the state of Washington, they started smoking marijuana in their staff retreats. You can do a lot of planning that way, I guess, right? <laughs> Then they announced they were going to do weddings for gay people. And uh, I think the last I heard, the church was down to a couple of hundred people. Sad, isn't it? Focus. Focus is everything. I went to Cedar Rapids as a young 30-year-old pastor, church of about 300 in Cedar Rapids, determined about one thing, my focus. And you th realize, you, uh, you probably, you, I know you haven't heard the story and I won't bore you with it, but I grew up in, in South Africa during a season from the age of about 9 to 17 when I left on a freighter to come to this country in the middle of white-hot revival in my dad's church. People were getting saved every Sunday. Baptismal services once a month. Uh, as many people in prayer meeting, and we were running about 700 in those days, which doesn't sound like much in today's uh, American economy, but it was huge in those days. And we had as many people in prayer meeting as in Sunday services. And even though that marked me and has become sort of my, my true north in terms of pastoral ministry and church ministry, I got to Cedar Rapids at the age of 30. I'd been reading a lot of church growth manuals and books, materials, and I was convinced that I was gonna, uh, we were going to program First Assembly Cedar Rapids into a thriving church. I'd be known as a successful pastor. That was my focus. Now I can say in hindsight, I would have told you the time I was doing God's work. And there was a measure of, of that, that that got done. But my focus was was me and being noted as a successful pastor in Iowa. And, uh, and so off we went. 
And we got a, a good worship team. We got a choir. We did Easter musicals. We did Christmas musicals. We did Fourth of July pageants. We had stuff going. We had programs for every need and some programs for no, any, any need we could anticipate in the future. And the poor people were running their legs off seven days a week. And that was actually back when seven-day-a-week church, there was a book published like that was a good thing. And we did it all for two and a half years. We didn't have one person come to Christ or have one baptismal service in two and a half years. And gradually, a sense of holy dissatisfaction started gnawing at me. And again, not really listening to the Lord, just got to to fix this then. This thing's not growing and we're doing everything I know to do and and uh, we're, we're the busiest church in Cedar Rapids, and, and nothing much is happening, and we've got to fix it. So in my mind, my way of thinking, I thought, well, I know what I need. I need theological education. So God's, God's merciful, even when we're making decisions for the wrong reasons, right? And so it turns out my, I signed up in the Assemblies of God Seminary in, in Springfield for those in extension courses where you'd do your reading and then go to class for a week and then go home and do your research. And so I was down in Springfield, Missouri for a week and God, in God's mercy, my first professor was a little old gentleman who's recently passed away. I got to sit with him at a, at a Pentecostal Scholars Conference a few years ago in Cleveland, Tennessee, and he was all hunched over. His name is Stanley Horton. Wrote the most profound textbook on the Holy Spirit, what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. But at this point in his life, he was no longer a professor, and nobody cared much of what he said. And we were at the Scholars Conference with all the up-and-coming scholars, and I'm sitting on the front row, happened to sit next to Stanley Horton. He was all bent over, couldn't even look up except over the top of his glasses. And I sidled up next to him, and I said, I don't know if you remember me. But God used you to change my life. Because when I walked in that classroom, I like sitting in the front so I can take notes and, and do well in the class. And when Dr. Horton first walked out, he was in his 70s then. And he, all he brought was his Greek New Testament. And I might have known that God was setting me up when the title of the course, and I've still got the notes, was Guidance and Power in Luke and Acts. And the theme that Dr. Horton chose was to identify the Greek words in the Gospel of Luke that Luke chose to describe the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ when he was on this earth. And then took a parallel in the book of Acts, how Luke used the exact same words in the book of Acts to describe the power and person of the Holy Spirit in the life of the body of Christ. We, the embodiment of who Jesus is. And I guess you've figured out by now, I can get a little emotional at times. And, and uh, everybody is around me, 30, 40 pastors from all over the Midwest. They're all taking notes. And I, I, I ruined the whole notepad because I, I cried all over the notepad. And after we took a lunch break, I moved to the back of the room 
because I was embarrassed, literally embarrassed. I could not hold it back. And the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on a young man who was so focused on success that he forgot that the focus was God. And at the end of that course, I drove back Friday night. It was a nine-hour drive. I drove all the way back to, to Cedar Rapids, got up early Saturday morning and got to put a sermon together. Right? I tried everything I could to put a sermon together. Sat up by the Cedar River with my Bible and a couple of books. Tried to find a golden oldie that I could refurbish. And I got that gnawing fear, right? Some of you pastors or teachers or even parents know what that is. Got that gnawing fear. God wants me to repent. Got no sermon to preach. That was the Sunday where I stepped into the sanctuary and I hoped that worship would go on forever because <laughs> I didn't want to get up there. But finally, there was no more worship and it was time to preach and I stood in front of those 300 people and I said, I've got a confession to make. I've been your pastor for two and a half years and I've been a prayerless senior pastor. I said, oh, I prayed over meals. I prayed over you if you were unfortunate enough for me to visit you in the hospital. But I had no prayer life. Zero. I was too busy pushing the buttons. I was too busy doing church growth. I was too busy trying to be my first senior pastorate. And I desperately wanted to be successful. I was just too busy at it. And so, but I said this, this is one thing the Lord did say to me up overlooking the Cedar River. The Lord said, if you will seek me, and if you will call everybody I send you to, to seek me, I will do exceeding abundantly more than you could ask or think. So I stood in front of that congregation that morning. And all I knew, just because of some stuff I'd been reading, was what was happening in those days in Larry Lee's church, Church on the Rock in northern Texas, northern Dallas, Rockwall, Texas. This is before he went sideways, unfortunately. And uh, about 1,500 people there, and I could sense the presence of the Lord. And he took me out to lunch afterwards, and I had my clipboard, Right? I was ready to write down all the secrets. He said, there's no secret. He said, we have prayer meeting 6 a.m. every morning. And about 175 people every Sunday morning, every morning of the week, Monday through Friday, we call on God and God hears and answers prayer. So I said to Cedar Rapids, I said to the church, look, I've been a prayerless senior pastor and I promise you that's going to end today. And the Lord has told me that if I'll call you to pray with me, that he'll do exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. So I said, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, I'm going to be in the prayer room. And as many of you as can make it, Cedar Rapids is only about 120,000 people. 
So getting to church and then getting to work at seven or after seven is not, not hard because it's all close. And so, so we started early morning prayer meetings. I, I got there early, quarter to six, not knowing who would show up. Seventy-five people showed up. And at noon, my wife ran a noon prayer meeting. She had 20 uh, wives, moms, people who could get away at lunchtime. And, and within a week, the Sunday services changed. And I wasn't any different except I changed my focus. My focus wasn't the greatest worship ministry in Cedar Rapids. My focus wasn't the greatest productions in Cedar Rapids. My, my focus had to shift back to where it was just God and God alone. And I, I want to, in the few moments I got left, I want to, and for the folks upstairs, I'm going to depart from, from the schedule I gave you, so I'm really sorry. But I want to jump into my text this morning. Just give me a second. I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Numbers chapter 2. And the Lord got my attention these two verses a few months back. Um, And it really goes along with, with sort of how I set this message up this morning by sharing with you a little bit of my own journey. I won't go into a lot of the details, but just to give you some highlights back to Cedar Rapids for a moment. By the end of that summer, that was the summer of 1983. By the end of that summer, we'd added a second service. And people were lining up on the sidewalk to get in the service, which just blew me away. Things I'd been trying to do with slick programming, and and God did in, in three months. And if by the end of that winter, we had to move to a high school auditorium across the street because there were too many children to accommodate in our old facility. And the old facility was landlocked with residential homes. So we had to start looking for property. But you know, the first Sunday that I confessed to the congregation I'd been prayerless and promised them I was going to change that and change the focus of my life. I had a gentleman, I've told this story enough, I wish I could remember his name. His first name was Harold. He was a prominent businessman in that area. He walked up to me and gave me an envelope. And he said, it was almost as if the Lord had prepared him for that Sunday. And he said, with what God is starting here today, you're going to need some property. And this will help you with the down payment of the property. And I didn't want to be rude and open the check when I got back to my office. It was $40,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in those days in a farming community like Cedar Rapids is a lot of money. And uh, we started looking for property, and we couldn't find any property. The realtors were telling us uh, we were going to have to pay a lot of money, even for 10 acres. So I gave up on the realtors, and I started praying. And I went to the county office and started pouring through plat maps myself. I found 40 acres on Blair's Ferry Road, which was a major east-west artery then in Cedar Rapids. And the reason nobody knew about it was because it only had 400 feet of frontage on, on Blair's Ferry Road, but it opened up into a whole oak, a wood of oaks, and a stream ran through it. 
And I found the farmers that owned it, and they were in a tax hurt because their dad had died, and they just sold his farm. And they owned this property. And I said, I think, I think the Lord's going to do a miracle for you. I'm going to help you with your taxes. I said, I want to give you $160,000 for these 40 acres. And I'll give you 40000 down. And I want you to carry the balance. And we'll pay it off in a short amount of time. But, but I want to buy these 40 acres for 160000 I know it's under market. But if you'll have it valued, you can get a tax benefit. They came back and they were typical. They were farmers themselves. We met on the property. Big old hefty guys with bibbed overalls. Kicked the dirt when you talk to them, right? When we met with them the second time, they said, I met with the family, and, and they said, yeah, go ahead, you, you can have the property. We bought 40 acres for, for $165,000 or $167,000, and that fall, uh, we pitched a tent and held a meeting in that tent, brought in some guests and some people in the area. The major drug dealer to the business community... I won't mention his name, got saved in that tent and within a couple of years was teaching the Royal Ranger ministry program and is still serving the Lord and his kids are serving the Lord today. Right? And I don't, I, I really, I dislike pastors sharing success stories like it's, you know, we went from these numbers to these numbers and I, I really don't like that because it's the least significant stuff about what we do. And, and I guess if there's anything like that Afrikaans evangelist that I can, that I can leave with you today that's meaningful and that will stay with you is found in these two verses and numbers. Now Israel has, Israel has escaped Pharaoh. They've trekked across the wilderness. God has parted the Red Sea for them, turned the bitter waters of Mara sweet done all kinds of miracles, and they're at the base of Sinai. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, chapter 2 of Numbers, verse 1. The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. And I want to stop there for just a second, because I want to just, before I get to the last part, before I get to verse two, last part of verse 2, I just want to point out a couple of things for you here to think about. Three things, very quickly. One, they're to live in tents. I think there's one thing that this season we're in is teaching us, and that is to not take this world that we live in too, as so seriously. Because this, literally, this world, we're, we like that old spiritual, we are just passing through. This world is not our home. And a lot of us have lived as if it is our home and our permanent dwelling, and as if our hope and our joy comes from what's happening here. But one by one, the enemy, and I think God's taking advantage of it, has pulled every prop and every bit of security out from that joy. And maybe it didn't happen in Louisiana, but it sure happened in the state of Washington. Until, until the place, the, the place came, we came to the place where, where we had to decide, are we going to obey God or are we going to obey man? One by one, all the joy, even of ministry, was pulled away. Until we were left with the realization that, that this is not our permanent home. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
And the writer of Hebrews says that 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 lineup of faith in Hebrews 11 was able to survive because they realized that they were going to a city whose builder and maker is God. And I'm not saying we got to get so earthly, so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. I think that's a stupid saying anyhow. You can't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. The more heavenly minded you are, the more useful you are to the kingdom of God on this earth. But at the same time, we have to realize that we're just passing through and we're heading. We are in an eternal kingdom and heading towards the fulfillment and finality of that eternal kingdom where the things of this world will grow strangely dim. But they are growing strangely dim. So remember, we're living in tents. Your house and mine, I mean, I I love my house and love the way it is and we're comfortable there, feel very blessed to have that house. But it's a temporary dwelling. If Jesus doesn't come back soon, some guys in white suits will show up Sunday with a gurney and wheel me out of that house. Put me at forest lawn. People will say some nice things, hopefully, over me and shed a few tears and go home and go on with their lives. We're temporary here. And and God, not as if they didn't need reminding, but God tells, tells Moses and Aaron, tell the people they're, they're living in tents here. The second thing is those tents are pitched to, to, by their tribe to rally, and they're told to rally to the banner of that tribe. And I would suggest every congregation represents a tribe. That God has called you, if this is your church home, God has called you to this tribe. Don't be fickle to this tribe. Raise the banner of this tribe. God is moving. No church is perfect, certainly not the one in Seattle that I pastor. So don't wait for a perfect church. And if you find one, don't join it because you'll screw it up. Right? So... So by the grace and power of God, identify your tribe. It concerns me when Christians so fickly move, jump around. We lost some young families, and I'm not bitter about that. That's between them and God. But we lost some young families to that church that advertised, give us 35 minutes, we'll give you God. And I couldn't fathom how they could go from the presence of God in prayer meetings to give us 35 minutes and we'll give you Jay Leno. But they did, because they weren't committed to their tribe. And if God has put you here, he's put you here for a reason. Be loyal to your tribe. Identify the banner. The pastoral staff and the leaders will help you identify the banner. Each tribe has its own unique banner that God has given. But then I want to drill down just a little bit further, if you'll allow me. Each family of each tribe was to rally to their standard. So the tribe had a banner, and the family had a standard. And I want to ask you, moms and dads who are here, even grandparents, what's the standard of your family? I don't mean standards like moral codes, although that's good, but what's the standard? Does your family have a standard? Because the reason for this, you're living in tents, stay with your tribe, that's going to be a banner for you to rally to, is because when there's an attack, you rally to the banner, right? When there's, when your back's against the wall, you rally to the banner. 
also to the standard. When there's, when the enemy comes against you like a flood, you, you, God raises a standard. And so that standard here is the standard that belongs to each family. What's the standard? What has God spoken to you? What's God, what's God's vision for your family? What's God, moms and dads, God's given you joint responsibility for the spiritual welfare of your family. Do you have a standard? Listen, to get some time away and ask God, what is our standard? What's the mission of this family? It has different aspects in the role, in the Rollins family back when we were raising two girls. And one of the, one of the elements of our standard is that whatever music we have in this home and in our cars is going to be godly music. Not that, not that, you know, some classical or jazz is all evil. I'm not saying secular music is evil. It's all wonderful music, but God's allotted to each of us just so long, so many hours to listen to music. I want to listen to music that builds my soul. And when my kids got old enough to drive and I bought them their first little ramshackle cars, I said to them, when you're driving in this car that I just bought you, I want you to listen to God's music. Well, one day Catherine, who was our youngest and always pushing the limits, had her car parked behind mine, so I grabbed her keys to move it. And when I turned it on, it had some Kiss 90-whatever station. And I sat there as the old days of push button. I programmed every button to the Christian radio station. (laughs) She got the point, right? But what is the standard of your family? It's so important. It's so important now while everything's been shaken that your standard not just be what you do for recreation, although God smiles on that, but your standard be who, who are you in God and what mission has God given your family? I'm so blessed beyond measure to have two daughters now and sons-in-law that like the, your pastor's family that serve the Lord uh, with me and alongside of me in ministry. And, and Vanessa, our eldest, is probably a better preacher than her dad will ever be. God's anointing and standard made a difference in their lives, and it's fun to watch them set up standards. But that's not even the most important thing I want to just leave with you. Here's the last part of verse 2, and this is what really gripped me. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. In other words, every family's tent... And I don't know if, if you've got the slide up there. It's just a crude artist's rendition of what the camp of Israel might look, might have looked like. But when you, when you look at it closely, you can't see all the doors, but at least the artist has gotten it right that you see on the right hand side of the tabernacle, you see every tent door opening towards the presence of God. And Exodus 33, 8 says, whenever Moses went out to the tent, the tabernacle, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. In other words, every family's focus and orientation isn't your career, isn't 
the money that God blesses you to earn and to make isn't even really the ministry that God has given you. Sometimes ministry can be as much of a, of a pitfall as, as anything else. So the focus of your tent, and this is the last thing I want you to hear, and hopefully the imagery of tents will help to stick with you. I want to encourage you, open the tent of your house. Let the tent of your family and your house be focused on the presence of God. Because all the things I mentioned when I began this, this brief message, maybe it's not getting so brief, but, but all the things I mentioned about churches that have evangelism and that worship and teaching, all those are wonderful things. And I can't judge, nor do I or speak for the pastors and the leadership of those churches. But I got to tell you, I learned from experience that you can have all of those things exactly in the right place and at the right level of, of efficiency and success. But if the tent, uh, door of your life isn't open towards the presence of God, eventually, like D.L. Moody discovered, the best of your exercises and abilities and successes, even in ministry, will be like a noose around your neck. My wife was at a worship conference a few years ago right after some of the huge moral failures in Pentecostal ministers in the States. And the pastor at the worship conference said something so profound. He said, what happens, we all look on as pastors and we say, see, I had the misfortune or the honor of following. When I got to Westgate Chapel, there were two senior pastors before me who had had moral failures. The first one who was very successful in evangelism and literally uh, built the church and the building, literally the building we're in now, he built on the success of his ministry. But it turned out in the eight years he was there, he'd had six girlfriends, all of them ladies that he was counseling. And when I got there, they were just wrapping up a lawsuit from one of the husbands against the church for allowing something like this to happen. Just got wrapped up before I got there, Right? So you can be a successful evangelist and, be, and see people coming to Christ. One of the things I had to do when I got there was counsel people who had come to Christ under his ministry and been baptized by him and were wondering, is that legit? It set them at such dis-ease. And this pastor that my wife heard at the conference said, here's the problem. When we start off in ministry, we're so desperate for God, so afraid we're going to mess up and be faltering, that our first sermons or our first ministry, we're crying out to God, oh God, please, you've got to help me. And God honors that prayer and helps you. But then down through the years, 10, 15, 20 years go by and you can preach and you know pretty much where to put the humor and where to put the points and all, you've got that all figured out. And so instead of being so desperate for God, you start preaching out of righteous flesh was the phrase he used. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And at this point, there's nothing wrong in your life, but you're just ministering righteously, but out of the flesh, righteous flesh. And he said, what happens when you've ministered in righteous flesh long enough, the transition into unrighteous flesh happens almost imperceptibly. I will never forget that. Folks, we got to keep the tent of our doors, doors of our tents, focused on one thing, 
That's the presence of God. Because if I've got anything in my life that's worth giving out and worth pouring out, it's things that I receive when I'm in his presence. Or when he wakes me up like he did last night, and I'm not trying to impress you by saying that at 3 o'clock in the morning and changes everything that I was planning on talking about today. I just want to be so close to him, right? There's a song that goes something like that. I want to be so close to him. That it makes no change when Jesus calls my name. That there's no great change when he calls my name. Folks, here at First New Testament Church, make sure that the doorway of your tent is facing the presence of God. Because in a subsequent verse in Exodus, as soon as the people facing the tabernacle saw the glory of God come down in the cloud, they would bow in the doorways of their tents and they would worship. Right now, we don't have to go to a special place where the tent's pitched. Right now, by the grace of God, there's not a single location, not even this building, not the building at Westgate Chapel. That's a single place where God resides. By the Holy Spirit, he resides right here. So you can open the door of your tent and bow in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, driving to work. I remember as a teenager in the middle of revival with my dad driving his old 49 Ford. And as a teenager, he would embarrass me so badly because no air conditioning in those days and Africa was warm. So the windows would be down and it wouldn't be like he was. We didn't have Christian music. We didn't have Christian radio. I don't know what something would hit him. We'd be driving just normally down the road going fishing or whatever. And suddenly he'd shoot his hat out the window and he'd say, Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. I glorify your name. What was happening? His tent was pitched towards the glory of God. And whether he was fishing or working on a car or whatever, the touch of God would be on his life. And suddenly he would be lost in worship. And as a kid, I'd be embarrassed and want to duck under the dashboard of the car because what's dad doing? And wow, Right now, what I wouldn't give for just five minutes, right? The last time I saw him when I left South Africa, when he'd been diagnosed with cancer, he used to do this when he'd come to the States and visit. We'd bring he and mom out. He'd stop at the jetway, turn towards us back when you could see folks off at the airport, and he'd just do this, right? And as I stepped away from his bedroom, the last time I saw him alive, kissed me on the cheek as I said goodbye to him. And that little bony hand came up. Because there's one thing to keep our eyes on. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior of our lives. He's our Redeemer. He is our strength. He is our hope. He is our salvation. I want to keep forever the door of my life focused on him and him alone and watch and follow his direction as he guides me step by step in ministry. Will you stand with me, please? Blessed be the name. Will the musicians come, please? I'm so blessed by seeing how freely you all move about in this altar area and minister to each other. It's an indication of the, of the quality of, of what pastor has led here and your hearts. I feel like I'm home. 
I feel like you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it makes ministry here so easy. It's such a blessing for me. But if you're here this morning and you just want to get close to him, if you've allowed anything in your life to divert your attention and your focus, even on good things, even on righteous things, even on ministry things, but you've allowed the time to be robbed out of your life and you're saying, God, I want to, I want to. I want to reorient my tent. (laughs) I want to focus the doorway of my tent on you so that I can receive from you what you alone can give. Just come and find a place of prayer.